Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today, we're here to talk about uh, the United Nations, which actually makes sense since the UN General Assembly is happening in New York. Um, I no longer live in Manhattan, and uh, this is the one time of year that I'm really grateful for that uh, with all the traffic and everything. Wait, what uh, happens What happens in New York during the UN General Assembly? How bad does it get for the people that don't live there and never have? Uh, it shuts down Midtown completely, absolutely completely, just all these, uh, you know, limousines and everything else uh, how's the traffic been treating you richard richard gowan is joining us today uh he is at uh at the un although not at the moment yeah, yes the traffic has been absolutely dreadful and it feels especially painful this year because since 2020 some of these big un gatherings have been limited because of covid regulations but this year it was back to a full-scale general assembly and I think 131 leaders turned up and they all have an entourage and they all have a lot of cars and they're all clogging up uh, much of the east side of Manhattan. <laughs> so can you tell people who you are? Um... Yeah, I'm the UN director for the International Crisis Group. Uh, the International Crisis Group is a global conflict prevention organization. I have colleagues who work in difficult and dangerous places uh, like Afghanistan, uh, talking to groups like the Taliban, uh, trying to understand what motivates them and how they could be persuaded to step back from violence. Uh, my job is a little lower key. I, I'm i based in Brooklyn, actually. I go into Manhattan every day and I talk to UN Security Council members and UN officials about what we're learning um, and how we think that the UN could promote peace more effectively in difficult cases, be it Afghanistan or Syria or Sudan. So uh, you've said that there are more than 100 leaders who showed up this year, but there are some real key leaders who didn't. Um, can you, so who showed up and who didn't? And what, what's the importance of it? Well, I think the... The number of leaders that actually turned up, 131, that's 131 presidents and prime ministers, is close to being a record. But what is notable is that the chiefs of some pretty significant powers stayed away. Uh, Joe Biden was here. Uh, the US president is always one of the star speakers. And this year, President Zelensky from Ukraine was able to come in person, which got a lot of attention. And I'm sure we'll talk about Zelensky's interventions more. Um, but Putin was not here from Russia. Uh, Xi Jinping was not here from China. 
uh, Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister of India, who's just been hosting the G20, uh, didn't make it. And perhaps even more surprisingly, Rishi Sunak from the UK and Emmanuel Macron from France uh, did not attend. And it is unusual for the British and French leaders not to come to the UN. So there's been quite a lot of chatter in the margins asking, what does this tell us about the UN? Do most big powers now really think that clubs like the G20 and the G7 are where they go to do top-level diplomacy? And is the General Assembly not exactly fading away, but becoming essentially a space for the leaders of small and medium-sized countries to get their moment on the world stage, but with less political impact than was once the case? That's a huge difference, though. I mean, the UN, which was, uh, hey, that there are probably some people who don't know this, was actually set up in the wake of World War II um, to try to have some sort of transnational body to prevent wars like World War II. Um, I mean, it's been the UNGA has been a really preeminent event every year. Is that right? It, it has been. And if you go back over history, you know, a lot of leaders have used the General Assembly as a platform to make big announcements about the direction of the world. I mean, back in the 1980s, Gorbachev used to come to the UN and often he used his trips to the UN to sort of explain Glasnost and how he was trying to end the Cold War. And so there is a feeling that perhaps the the General Assembly is now losing out as a platform relative to clubs like the G20. I, I'm not surprised, by the way, that... Well, I'm not surprised that Putin didn't come. You know, obviously, he would have just been the focus for an incredible amount of condemnation and criticism. I'm also not hugely surprised that Xi Jinping didn't come. Uh, she has only actually attended the General Assembly once in person. That was in 2015. I think the Chinese always feel a little on the back foot at the General Assembly because they see it as being a show where the US is dominant. But as I say, the fact that some key US allies like Sunak and Macron um, didn't show uh, is quite a telling sign of, of how the General Assembly may be sort of dropping down the global pecking order. Well, in Modi, too, that's a pretty large... Uh pretty large country to to not attend, right? I'm surprised Modi didn't come. I had assumed that he would come because the Indians have just pulled off a pretty successful G20 meeting in Delhi against the odds. And you would have thought that Modi would come and do a bit of a victory lap in, in New York. I, I'm really not sure why he didn't make it. He was here earlier in the year, ironically, for the uh, all-important International Day of Yoga. And Modi actually led this astonishing uh, mass yoga exercise on the lawn outside the UN with all the, the ambassadors doing stretches um, following his every move. So he's been at the UN quite recently, but I, I mean, I think it's probably a bit of a missed opportunity for him uh, not to uh, not to be here. I mean, it's possible that this is all related to the domestic politics of the country and countries involved. That's certainly probably true for someone like Rishi Sunak, who has been facing an enormous amount of criticism back in the UK over issues like problems with 
school buildings. I mean, I think at the present moment, for for a leader like for a leader like Sunak, there's only limited political cap- capital to be gained by going to one more summit, one more conference. Uh, there's actually quite a lot of demand for him to be back at home dealing with nitty gritty domestic issues. Um, so that I mean that could be a factor as well as whatever the status of the UN may be. But I love the excuses. Um, I mean, the, my favorite, of course, is Macron. Um, and you said, I, I think when we uh, spoke briefly yesterday, um, that it, King Charles, King Charles is apparently going to make a visit. Um, and uh, so this figurehead of great importance and lovely pomp, um, that's enough to stop Macron from coming here? I mean, what? Yeah, that does feel a little bit contrived. And it, it's odd that Macron didn't come here. He, I mean, he has spoken at the UN quite a lot. Uh, he gave a good speech last year, uh, attacking Russia over the aggression against Ukraine, you know, framing this as Russian imperialism. I mean, Macron is famous for giving incredibly overlong speeches at the UN. Uh, I was joking to a French journalist that the General Assembly will be about a day shorter because he uh he isn't here to give his speech <laughs> but nonetheless he he normally seems to enjoy it but you know perhaps again he thought that the the visuals of him walking the streets of paris with king charles uh, would pay off better than you know him once again on a podium uh looking serious at at other world leaders so with the um UN General Assembly, was that ever really a place where, I mean, people gave great speeches. Is there a lot of work that gets done there, too? Is there a reason for a leader to be there just simply to actually accomplish something? I think if you if you go back to the very early days of the UN, it was a working space. And the leaders would come to the UN for very long periods, I think weeks at a time back in the 1940s and 1950s, uh, because, you know, that was the way that they could meet up. Um, Now, obviously, any leader can jump on Zoom and speak to any other group of presidents and prime ministers that they like, and that uh, has reduced the, the statement of the General Assembly as a working space. Um, what the General Assembly does do is act as a platform for Joe Biden and his counterparts to try and send out some general political messaging about where the world should be going over the year ahead. And so this year, the focus has been very much on international development. A lot of countries from the the so-called Global South, Africa, Asia, Latin America, have been very critical of uh, you know the west stepping back from development aid they've been voicing a lot of, a lot of concerns about their economic situations uh, about rising debt burdens and related issues and what biden and others did during this week was really pledged that they're going to try and work together to get more financing to poorer countries uh, they're going to put more money into organizations like the World Bank and the IMF to to deal with some of these economic stresses. Now, 
the money doesn't sort of get negotiated here. Uh, it's something which has to be discussed in World Bank meetings and IMF meetings. But the reason the General Assembly is useful is that the leaders have now given the political direction, which the technocrats uh, can pick up on and turn into policy going forward. If you are someone like a Russia or a China uh, or an India, does the do you think that the 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 rise of the internet has changed the usefulness of the UN General Assembly? I think specifically of Russia has has done a pretty good job of um, communicating to the West uh, via the internet, via other means, and, and instead of you know, sending their top dog into a room to kind of pontificate before a group of people. And then that kind of gets disseminated, which is, feels like a lot of what they've used the UN general assembly before and decades past. That's not needed anymore. Right. Like all of that information can kind of be disseminated online. Um, do you think that the internet has changed the way the UN general assembly is used by some of these nations? I think, I think it has to some extent. And, you know, Putin can send a message about how he feels about the state of the world very effectively by, you know, meeting Kim Jong-un on the eve of the General Assembly. I mean, that, you know, the images of the Russia-North Korea meeting just prior to the big UN gathering, I think, were, were quite pointedly timed to send some messages. Well, you know, what I would say in defense of the General Assembly, though, is that in addition to all the speeches and the you know, the top level political messaging, is that it is a space where very senior politicians can also quietly have bilateral meetings. And actually, a lot of diplomats will tell you that you should ignore most of the speeches, that the real action that happens around the General Assembly is inside rooms. Um, or in diplomatic missions where you have quiet face-to-face discussions being held that would be very difficult to organize um, in other settings. And one person who has made use of the UN quite effectively in that way this week uh, has been Zelensky. Uh, Zelensky was in New York for most of two days, I think. And although he did give a number of major speeches, uh, he was also huddling with a whole range of African and Latin American leaders. He met with Ramaphosa from South Africa. He met with President Ruto of Kenya. He met with Boric from Chile. And I think what Zelensky understood was that just by being in New York, he could get FaceTime with some of the non-Western leaders who have been wavering a bit about how to respond to the Russian-Ukrainian war. And he was able to you know, use these moments to, to lobby them to take a harder line against Moscow, or at least shift a bit away from neutrality. And it was interesting, we did see that after Zelensky met Ramaphosa, Ramaphosa, who at times has seemed to be leaning towards Russia, actually gave a speech which seemed to lean a little bit back towards Ukraine. So we shouldn't underestimate the the personal diplomacy element, and you can't get that through the the internet. 
it, it, it is striking that you know, the General Assembly that was held in 2020, which was only online, was a, a complete non-event because it didn't have any of that uh, that personal element to it, which is what the leaders really like. Um, in addition to going shopping, I mean, it's, it's also well known that a lot of politicians come here with a lot of empty suitcases that they fill up in the stores of Madison Avenue and and take back home, which is you know another side benefit to being in New York. <laughs> so, uh, where do they stay? Actually, I mean, are there enough nice hotel rooms to uh, host all these world leaders in their entourages? Some stay with their ambassadors, I think. Uh, some stay in in hotels around Midtown, which only adds to the the chaos. <laughs> um, the The U.S. president always used to stay at the Waldorf until I think the Waldorf was taken over by a Chinese company, and I think Biden stayed stayed in another hotel. Uh, it, this is a time when you know trying to get I'm trying to get even an expensive hotel room in um, uh, in Manhattan is is almost physically impossible. <laughs> um, so, I guess I, I'm thinking all of these leaders are there. They're what do they hope to get? Is everybody looking for something other than you know uh, something from Dior or Hermes? <laughs> uh, you know what. If you're, let's say, um, a smaller country, if you're uh, Soweto, I, I, you know, I mean, what are you hoping to get out of it? I mean, is there actually little bits of crumbs from the table of the great uh, powers that you can bring home? Or I think, I think that varies depending on the country and also depending on their priorities. I mean. F- if you take one particular group of small states that is is always quite active around the General Assembly, that's the Pacific Island states. And the Pacific group have become quite skilled at coming to the General Assembly and lobbying very hard for other countries to make more pledges on climate change and limiting global warming um, because you know, the big annual UN climate summit uh, is taking place in Dubai in a few weeks' time. And so for the Pacific Islanders, who otherwise have very little access to leaders from other regions, this is a great opportunity to get together and, you know, make a moral case, frankly, for why we should be fighting global warming. Now, they've been making that case for many years, Clearly, UN climate diplomacy is badly off the rails, but we do see them quite intelligently uh, operating around the General Assembly to to raise the profile of their case. I think for other leaders, it may be more about bilateral openings and opportunities, uh, a chance, you know, a chance to speak to the president of a neighboring nation about your problems quietly without getting too much attention. And so many people may come here with quite specific diplomatic goals that aren't really related to the UN and don't really get into the the news media. And then there is also publicity. Um, A lot of leaders, especially leaders from uh, Europe, for example, come with 
very considerable numbers of journalists. Um, and they're often journalists who are not really foreign policy specialists, I mean, let alone UN specialists. They're basically there trailing the leader, just writing constant reporting about his or her meetings. I remember once a few years ago going into the the garden in the UN compound and dotted all around this quite large garden, you could see individual prime ministers with, in some cases, dozens of journalists around them, just asking them about their agenda, what they're doing. And of course, you know, it's it's a it's a little bit of a coup if you can get some photos of yourself with with Biden or this year, I think Zelensky was obviously a, a big photo opportunity target and have those spread all over the home media. I mean, you know, it is a good way of sort of trying to show your domestic audience that you, that you matter on the world, the world stage. And, you know, as a um, as someone who does quite a lot of media work around the, the General Assembly, I mainly field questions about about Biden, about the issues we're talking about now. But I'll also get questions from journalists sort of saying, you know, uh, what did you think of the Austrian president's speech? Or, you know, how important is the Irish Taoiseach um, at this year's General Assembly? Because that's what home home media markets want to know. <laughs> well, uh, they're the most important, of course. And their speech probably changed the world. I mean, what else could it be? <laughs> I think there was a moment um, a couple of years ago when one Central American leader, I think it may have been is it Bukele from El Salvador, um, actually stood on the podium in front of the diplomats and whipped out his cell phone and took a selfie. And he said, millions more people are going to see this selfie than are going to listen to the speech. And I think that um, <laughs> you know, that sort of does capture one of the truths about how these uh, these big meetings function. Can we talk? There, to, sorry, Matthew. Matthew. No, there is something about um, the image of the leader at that podium, uh, you know, giving giving that speech. Right. When I think about the UN General Assembly, I think about that. Uh, I it, it, it's sad. I only vaguely remember the things that were said, but I do remember those images. I, I you know, I, when I think about Zelensky, I think about Zelensky up there a few days ago giving that speech. Right, the images are a powerful component of this. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, and the UN is an iconic, uh, you know, it's an iconic building. And what what you don't see because of the way they do the camera shots is that for most for most leaders other than Biden, the room is half empty. Uh, e- even for Zelensky. I, I watched his speech on the, the UN webcast. It looked to me as if the room was at least a quarter empty. There were certainly quite a lot of non-Western countries whose uh, whose seats were were not filled. And if Zelensky can't, you know, pack the house, then then no one can pack the house. I mean, by the time you get to the the later half of the General Assembly week, you have presidents really talking to. Um, a bunch of interns who are there to take notes, and that's about it. But that's not what the camera the camera shows you. The camera shows you the leader standing, and yeah, you know, you I think you do in your subconscious. You'll remember photos of Fidel Castro standing there, Yasser Arafat, um, Gaddafi. Did he bring in a gun? Am I, I remembering that? Yeah, yeah. 
yeah exactly you, know, you think that sort of that sort of that that triggers a memory um yeah and every i think everyone well not everyone because we say some some people like Xi Jinping are missing but for a lot of leaders you know that's that's the photo you're probably going to have sort of on the wall of your restroom for the rest of your life i mean even this trust even Liz Truss, who was only Prime Minister for, of Britain for 49 days, managed to get one speech done at the General <laughs> Assembly. And I, I bet she's got a photo of that somewhere in her, her office or home. <laughs> the uh, uh, you know, British media is, uh, um, oh, my God, did they make fun of her? Oh, wow. Uh, she was. They, that, have, more, they have more fun than the American media does. Yeah, the British media, just in general. Um, they, every, they, have, they have a lot to make fun of right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Can we talk a little bit about the UN itself um, as an organization, as opposed to just uh, the next couple of days? Uh, do you think this, I guess it's sort of a large question, but do you think the UN's best days are behind it at this point? You mentioned that, you know, G20 and, and other groups are meeting bricks. Um, do you think the UN still really a force to be reckoned with? I think, I think we have to be realistic. I mean, I'm someone I've, I've worked on the UN for 20 years. And so I, I genuinely believe that UN peacekeeping operations, UN humanitarian missions have a lot of value. But you say, are the best days of the UN behind it? Well, let's remember that you go back three decades, and even in the post-Cold War moment, when everyone was talking about international cooperation and talking about strengthening the UN, we had Srebrenica, we had Rwanda, we had Somalia. Even, even in its best days, the UN was struggling with appalling disasters. And I think it's the nature of the UN that it it almost always seems to be in crisis because there's always some conflict, some humanitarian situation, which for whatever political reasons, the UN cannot solve. So when I started working on the organization 20 years ago, it was the situation in Darfur, the situation in Sudan. Then for another decade, it was the situation in Syria. Now it's it's Ukraine. Um, so, you know, the UN to some extent is built built to fail. I, I think, however, we are in a moment where the sort of shifts in shifts in geopolitics are raising some even more fundamental questions about where the UN will be headed. Uh, clearly, the breakdown between the West and Russia is poisoning a lot of diplomacy in the Security Council. Uh, that's not just over Ukraine. I mean, recently, we've seen diplomatic breakdowns in the Council over issues like aid to Syria or or what to do about the new outbreak of fighting in Sudan. It's Nuclear getting, weapons. Yeah, it's getting harder and harder to cooperate with the Russians. And then there's also a sort of much longer term fight going on around the UN between the US and China about who controls the organization. And for both the Trump administration and now the Biden administration, countering Chinese influence at the UN is is one of the big priorities in, in New York. And so I, I do think there is a 
there is a big question mark hanging over the future of of the body, which is can can the UN keep functioning and keep working as a problem solving space in a bipolar or multipolar world, or will we find that actually the UN was at its best during the unipolar moment of American power because that actually sort of created a framework for multilateral cooperation which is now going to uh at least partially disappear another thing about the UN, you're talking about who controls it is it's a vast bureaucracy right um with lots of different there's the high commissioner for refugees there's part uh, unicef with which everybody's heard of um when you talk about control, is it does it partially have to do with who gets appointed to what and how the various agencies get run? Yes, to, to an extent it is. I mean, I, w- I would say when you're thinking about the much bigger universe of UN agencies, you know, a lot a lot of UN agencies are pretty technical. They're not based here in New York. They're based in Geneva or Vienna, elsewhere. And a lot of multilateral cooperation day to day is is not that controversial. And I think we sometimes sort of forget that element of what the UN does, that the UN is working on everything from standardizing postal rates to you know, monitoring nuclear power stations around the world. And a lot of that work, I think, sort of continues regardless of um, of what happens on the podium in the General Assembly. I, I recently discovered that there is a commission, I think based in Vienna, there's a UN commission that standardizes descriptions of cuts of meat. So if you have a steak, there, there's actually some UN standard for describing that steak um, <laughs> uh, that, that is out there somewhere. And that is not an issue that's on the top of leaders' minds in the General Assembly week. Uh, what we have seen, though, is that there has been a growing political battle to control some of these agencies. Uh, a few years ago, China took the US by surprise by putting a Chinese official at the top of the International Telecommunications Union. Now, again, very few of us, even UN nerds, had ever really thought about the ITU and what it does. But it turns out that it's the ITU which was setting global standards for the rollout of 5G. And so the Chinese made a great push to get control of that. And then when the Chinese uh official ended their term the us made a big and successful push to have an american put back on top of the itu because you know they they want to be shaping uh 5g and future technologies and so we we've seen that in in quite a lot of other un agencies now china is pushing for positions for authority sometimes in quite technical bodies um, because they can see that there are ways to use those technical bodies to their their economic advantage. Uh, the US and Europeans were slow to recognize what China was doing, but they're now very alert to it, and they're now pushing back quite hard trying to get Western candidates, um, or at least Western-friendly candidates, uh, running big UN organizations. So, you know, the, the geopolitical contest, it isn't just about, in the Security Council, it isn't just about... Syria and Ukraine. It's also a lot, of, a lot about the technical work that the UN carries on. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, um, I think that actually, uh, Matthew. Yeah, what would, what would a world look like where China has a more firm grip on the UN. I think that if, if China had its, if China had its way unopposed, it would keep a lot of the UN technical agencies running, but tweak their work to support initiatives like the Belt and Road. Um, it, it would also shut down a lot of UN discussions of human rights. And the, the Chinese uh, have always been very negative towards a lot of the work of the Human Rights Council, which is, you know, the the UN human rights champion based in, in Geneva. And they would really sort of focus cooperation on, you know, promoting a Chinese model of development through multilateral agencies. And you know that China has been laying out that stool uh, around the UN for the last decade or so, and it does appeal to quite a lot of countries. You know, a lot of non-Western countries are you know, are still resentful of the legacy of colonialism. They're resentful of Western countries not providing them enough development aid. They are drawn to the Chinese offer, but it's very unlikely that China is going to be allowed to shape the UN in its own image, the US and US allies are going to keep on uh, pushing back against Beijing. So what you're more likely to end up with is a situation where tensions between China and the West keep on gumming up UN discussions of all sorts of different issues. Uh, And multilateral cooperation becomes harder because cohabitation with China proves very difficult to sustain and i think that is that is something which for example Guterres, the un secretary general worries about a lot he worries that we're entering a world of block politics where you just won't be able to get universal agreement or consensus on how to deal with a lot of global problems uh, Guterres, for example is really fascinated by artificial intelligence he's arguing that the focus of next year's general assembly should be on building up a global governance structure around AI. But we don't really know if the US and China as leading AI powers are going to be able to find common ground around this or whether the 
the division between them will just mean you can't have effective UN-based regulation of these crucial innovations. I think for AI specifically, you're going to have to have something um, specific and bad happen before there's any kind of large uh, global movement on that. I'm sorry, Jason's laughing, <laughs> but I think it's true. Um, I think we're. I think everyone's going to rush forward with uh, it. I don't know. I have a lot of thoughts about this because it is something I look at quite a bit. I think that it's in many ways um, a little overfeared and underbaked at the moment. Uh, sorry, I was watching. Um, uh, I attended the 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 the, the arms control um, summit that was a couple days ago, and Nancy Pelosi spoke. Uh, there was a lot of talk about like we have to make sure that artificial intelligence is not integrated into command and control around nuclear weapons. And I'm just like, well, tell me, show me where the people are talking about integrating command and control with artificial intelligence. Like I need in like what kind when you say artificial intelligence, are you talking about like a large language model? Like specific like I need specifics. Because these words mean is it's a it's a wide term that means a lot of different things. A lot of people are using it for a lot of different things. Uh anyway, sorry. No, no. I mean, it's it's also worth saying that you know, this is now a fashionable topic amongst diplomats in in New York because mm-hmm. you know, AI is cool. But again, most most of the diplomats would admit they don't have the first idea um, about how these um, new technologies work. What is it? What is interesting though is that uh, a couple of years ago, Microsoft set up. Um, a de facto embassy at the UN. Um, Microsoft has a big office in actually one of the the tower blocks near UN headquarters where the French and the UK and the Italians and others also have their embassies. And I think that's because a lot of the tech companies believe that at some point down the road, you are going to have to have international regulation of you know, a whole range of, of technologies coming down the pipe, of which AI is um, probably the most sensitive. And so they want to be here. They want to be in the conversation. Um, you know, they, they want to have direct access to the diplomats who might, might be negotiating what future regulations look like. Um, and at a time when, you know, there's a lot of gloomy talk about, is the UN in irreversible decline? I find it quite interesting that you have some big, big tech companies suddenly coming forward and saying, no, no, we actually think that what, what you do is important to us. So, it, I mean, this, this is a, this is a intriguing new trend around the UN. Hmm. So anything else that we should look forward to at this uh, assembly or uh, anything we should look forward to just going forward with the UN, anything to look for? Um, I mean, look, this this General Assembly is already petering out. Uh, Zelensky has gone to Washington. Um, the speeches go on until Tuesday, but now most of the important speakers are are done and dusted. One, you know, one thing to look forward to over the longer term is that. Um, on this AI point, uh, Guterres, the Secretary General, um, is convening a special summit 
next September in the margins of the General Assembly, which he's calling the Summit of the Future. And he's trying to use that as a moment where leaders could could agree on at least initial frameworks for discussing multilateral controls around artificial intelligence and biotechnology. Uh, I think that, you know, I think that the US is interested in engaging on that constructively. I think the UK is interested in engaging in that constructively. So that could that could be an important event if it comes together. But as as we were saying, the political obstacles are high. Um, and then the other the other UN story that will come to life at some point in the next year or so is as Guterres has three more years of his term to run, the sort of contest to replace him is going to start to kick off, and it'll be interesting to see if there are any big international figures out there who believe that although the world is looking pretty bleak uh they could be a great un secretary general um so for again for the un nerds like me that that race is always fun it's a bit like the you know the the primaries um the primaries in the us election although there's no sort of trump type guaranteed winner in the race to be in the race to be unsg Maybe that actually could be his next job. Uh, he might be less of a threat if he was uh, running the UN. Yeah, Trump. Trump would. I would be a lot less scared um, about Trump's potential impact on the world if we put him in charge of of the UN. That actually could be a really great idea. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, funny, the funny thing about Trump and the UN is that he he never hated. He, he's never hated the UN in the way that he hates NATO um, or some other US commitments. Um, he had a big battle with the UN, I think, in the late 1990s, because he wanted to build a a tower block next to it, and the UN objected. So I think he's always seen the UN as a real estate competitor, not as a not as a threat to the US. <laughs> so maybe we could, he could take over the UN. He could knock down this sort of old old building, put up some really nice shiny towers. Yeah, that would be a good way for him to spend his coming years. It's all, you know, he gets to stay in Manhattan. He gets to go to fancy parties and, like, gossip and talk to people and give speeches. He'd love it. Uh, He did once. There was once a suggestion that he was going to try and make um, Ivanka Trump the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. Yes, Um, I remember those. I wrote wrote a a tongue-in-cheek piece for Politico arguing that this would be a good idea. I have never received as much abuse in my entire life. Um, so I should I should be careful what I say because people do when you when you say Trump, people start to take you more seriously than you were than you intended. <laughs> um, Matthew, you got anything else? No, I think I think that'll see me out. All right, <laughs> Richard Gowan, thank you so much for joining us uh, to talk about the UN. And uh, just help us understand what the heck is going on over there. Well, I'm, I'm never sure I really understand exactly what's going on, but um, <laughs> that you, I've, I've offered you my best guess. <laughs> well, thank like, thank, thanks much. so much. Thank you so much.
Thanks for listening to another episode of Angry Planet. The show is produced with love by Matthew Galt and Jason Fields, with the assistance of Kevin Nadal. This is the place where we ask you for money. If you subscribe to us on substack.angryplanet.com, it means the world to us. The show, which we've been doing for more than seven years now, means the world to us, and we hope it means a lot to you. We're incredibly grateful to our subscribers. Please feel free to ask us questions, suggest show ideas, or just say hi. $9 a month may sound like a big ask, but it helps us to do the show on top of everything else that we do. We'd love to make Angry Planet a full-time gig and bring you a lot more content. If we get enough subscriptions, that's exactly what we'll do. But even if you don't subscribe, we're grateful that you listen. Many of you have been listening since the beginning, and seriously, that makes it worth doing the show. Thank you for listening, and look for another episode next week. Stay safe.